Good morning. It's so good to see everyone here today. So good to be back. I appreciate you allowing me to be a part of polishing the pulpit, not just to attend, but also to help plan and make sure that it's carried out well. I want you to know this morning that you, even through your work that you allow me to do, are influencing people throughout the world. We have people from almost every state in the United States, people from Canada, people from Australia, people from New Zealand, who all came to polishing the pulpit, and I believe that it has blessed them, and they'll go back and bless others through that work. But you have had an opportunity to influence those people, even though you may never have met them. I had a special Sunday last Sunday, and we were able to be a part of some 4,000 who worshiped together at the uh, uh, event center there in Sevierville. And we had to have three services, had an early, early service for those who had to go home. And then also we had the two services because of uh, the fact that not everyone could fit into the auditorium. We had a, over a 1,000 in the first worship service and over uh, uh, three, uh, almost 3,000 in the second worship service. And so it was uh, a wonderful, wonderful day. But it's also special to be here. And to be able to worship our Heavenly Father together, no matter where we are on the face of God's earth. I want to begin our lesson this morning by posing two distinct questions to you. Number one, suppose that sometime within the next 30 seconds you heard a great voice that said, Behold, He comes. You heard the trumpet of God sound. Would there be some deep down guilt within you that you know that you needed to take care of? Is there some sin that you haven't taken care of that you know that if the Lord himself were to descend this very morning that you would be lost? We know we want to have time when he comes to take care of those sins and so we need to get uh, right with God at the time that's provided for us and that is, of course, right now. That's not the main question that I want to ask this morning. That's not the main focus that we want to put our attention on this morning. My second question is this. Suppose the Lord did not return for another thousand years and you were to live out your life on this earth for whatever length of time that may be, could be a number of years that you have left in your life. Would the rest of your life, however long that may be, would it be filled with misery because you harbor some guilt way down deep in your soul. Not because there's some sin that you haven't taken care of, but because you have sought to take care of that sin, and yet you still have that guilt. There's a psychologist, psychiatrist by the name of Alfred Korzybski who made this statement. He said, God may forgive your sins, but your nervous system sometimes won't. You know, as we think about our world, there are hundreds, maybe thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of people who have that problem. They, they suffer throughout their lifetime with guilt for something that they have done in their life. Why do people feel this way? What is it that can be done in order to help us? I don't know that I can answer all those questions. But this morning, in the time that we have allotted, there are five things that I want to look at, five things that people sometimes believe and believe quite strongly 
that we want to try to think about to see if it's a proper thinking so that we will be able to perhaps forgive ourselves. What are some of the reasons that people feel so guilty? Well, number one, it may be that they have the idea that they do not deserve to be forgiven. Let's get on the right There we go. Some feel as though they may not deserve to be forgiven. As we're thinking about that, I want you to, to know that I'm going to rock your world this morning. There's not a single one of us here who deserves to be forgiven. Not a single person in this auditorium, not a single person in this world who deserves to be forgiven. If you have your Bible, open it to the book of Romans chapter number 1. In Romans chapter 1, Paul writes about some of the bad things that the Gentile Christians or the Gentile world had done in times gone by. And we're not going to take time to read that long list of sins that he portrays there for us, but what I do want you to look at is verse number 32. In Romans chapter 1 at verse 32, the Bible says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That word that's translated deserve there literally means suitable for the due reward. Jesus was not deserving of death. The same word is used in the book of Luke chapter 23 at verse number 15. He was pronounced that way by Herod and also by Pilate. But what Paul is doing here in Romans chapter 1 at verse 32 is showing the sinfulness of the Gentile world in the past. And he said the people who were practicing the things, who were doing the things that they were doing, they deserve death. But then he goes into chapter number 2 and he says, Hey, Mr. Jew, don't get too excited because you too are guilty. And as a result of that, you're just like those Gentiles of the ancient world as well. But he's not finished there, for in chapter number 3, the Apostle Paul says, Hey, both the Gentiles and the Jews are guilty. And we come down to verse number 23 in that chapter, and there it is, we find this passage that says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Who are the all that is being spoken about by the Apostle Paul here in the book of Romans, chapter 3? Well, it's those Gentiles in chapter 1, it's those Jews in chapter number 2, and not only does it portray them, it also comes forward into our day, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That includes every single one. But I want us to understand that just like the Gentiles in chapter number 1, just like the Gentiles deserve to die, so it is that everyone who continues to practice sin deserves to die. But I want us to think about what is said here in Romans chapter 3, and I want us to begin reading in verse 21, and we'll include what we quoted there from Romans chapter 3, verse 23. And I want to ask you, as before we begin reading, have you read the entire sentence that Paul speaks or writes here in Romans chapter 3? We tend to write and to, to preach about verse number 23, and we fail to preach and practice and think about the entirety of the sentence that he gives. Beginning in verse 21 of Romans chapter 3, the Bible says, 
But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. As we think about what is said here, both Gentile sinners, Jewish sinners, all sinners deserve death. But it's because of the grace of God that's found in Jesus Christ that we can have redemption. If you're holding on to your guilt today because you don't believe that you deserve God's forgiveness, well, you don't deserve it, but God, through His Son, is gifting that to you to be able to have forgiveness of whatever it is that you have in your life. Remember what is said in the book of 1 Peter chapter 2 at verse number 24. He Himself, that is Jesus Christ Himself, bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by His wounds we have been healed. You know, we really need to do a better job at quoting that whole sentence, not just a part of it. Because sometimes that may contribute to us not believing that we need or deserve the forgiveness of God. We don't. But God is extending that to us anyway. And so many people in our world need to observe that and to know that. Number two, as we think about why some believe that they can't have forgiveness, why they feel so guilty, maybe they feel that because they think their sin is too big to be forgiven. What they have done is so bad that they simply cannot be forgiven. You know, I've heard of mothers who have spoken about aborting a baby. And they said, I murdered my baby. I don't believe God would ever be able to forgive me of that. I've heard of people who have stolen things, who said that I have stolen money from my company, or I've done uh, stolen some other thing, and I don't believe God could forgive me for stealing. I've heard people say that I have cheated on my spouse, committed adultery, And as a result of that, I don't believe God could ever forgive me. I've even heard of people say, I I, uh, 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 not only did all of those things, but I did multiple of those things, and so I don't know how in the world God could ever forgive me. My sin is too big. And you know the list could go on. But how many of us this morning remember a king by the name of David? David was one of those multiple offenders, was he not? As a matter of fact, in the book of Acts chapter 13 at verse 22, when we read about him, we find that that he is a forgiven man, it seems. God identifies this man as a man after his own heart in that passage, and yet he was an adulterer and a murderer, according to 2 Samuel chapter 11. When I think about that, I understand that God does, through his grace, look down upon me. And even though my sin is so big in my eyes, It's a sin that can be forgiven. There's a song, and we don't sing it a lot here. I heard it a lot in years gone by. It's titled this, Grace Greater 
than our sin. It was written by Julia H. Johnston in 1911. There's a line within that song that I think applies right here. She wrote these words, Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. As we think about that passage, concentrate on that part that says, Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Do you know that's a biblical concept? If you have your Bible, turn to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. And I want us to read together what the Apostle Paul writes there. He says, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. Did you notice the part of that passage that talks about how God's grace overflowed? The King James Version translates it in this way, The grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant. The New King James simply says it in this way, The grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant. That's the only time in the entire New Testament when this word that's translated into English Standard Version is used. It literally means something like superabundant, to possess in excess. In other words, there was more than enough grace extended by God to forgive even Saul, Paul, who persecuted, imprisoned, murdered God's people in the first century. Remember what Paul says of himself. He says, I am the foremost. And that literally means the first in time, the first in place, the first in order, the first in importance. Paul says, I'm the number one sinner of all time. And God's grace overflowed, was exceeding abundant, exceedingly abundant, super abundant, enough to forgive even me. And so God has extended His grace to exceed the sin and the guilt of every single individual who lives on the face of God's earth. And so if we get it into our mind that God's forgiveness can't apply to me because my sin is too big, we simply need to recall what is said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. But then there's a third idea that sometimes people have for feeling guilty. Maybe they feel that they cannot be forgiven because they still want to sin. That there's that temptation that is still there. Well, folks, we need to understand the temptation is very, very real. And I want to illustrate this point in a way that you may not have considered before, but it's a very valid point. You do remember in the book of Matthew chapter 4 that Jesus was tempted by Satan. The Bible is very clear in that. We remember the three temptations of Jesus that are mentioned there. The turning the stones into bread because he had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. The falling down and worshiping him. The carrying him up onto the, uh, to the high pinnacle of the temple. And Satan saying, cast yourself down. Those... Every time we remember how Jesus quoted Scripture and how He overcame the temptation. And it may be that a lot of times we think that 
that was the only time that Jesus was ever tempted to sin here on this earth. But I want us to understand that's not the case. In Luke's account of that very action, we find in chapter 4 at verse 13 of the book of Luke, that Luke ends this account by saying, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him, watch this, until an opportune time. In other words, Satan's coming back to tempt Jesus more later. He's coming back to try again. He's not giving up. You see, the temptation of Jesus was very real as well. But do we ever see it manifest itself again in Scripture? And the answer to that is yes. And sometimes we overlook it, I think. But in the book of Mark, chapter 8, beginning in verse 31 and going through verse number 34, we find a conversation that goes on and between Jesus and His disciples. And I want to read that from Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 31. The Bible says, And He began to teach them, that is, teaching His disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And He said this plainly. And Peter took Him aside and began to rebuke Him. I want you to think about what's going on here. Jesus is telling his apostles, making it very plain, perhaps for the very first time in this plain of language, that I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. And when Peter heard that, the Bible says he began to rebuke Jesus. He began to tell him, no, Lord, that's not it going to happen. That, that simply is not going to happen. We can't allow that to happen. The Bible says Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing the disciples, the reading goes on, he, that is Jesus, rebuked Peter. Do you remember, if you don't have your Bible open, do you remember? And if you do, you can look ahead and read what Jesus said to Peter as he rebuked him. Do you remember, remember the words, Get behind me, Satan. For you're not setting your mind on things of God, but on things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus was having to live that last part out, was he not? He was having to make his way to Jerusalem. He literally would end up on a cross giving his life. And we need to remember that Jesus had the power not to do that. Do you remember when he was being questioned by Pilate about all of the things that were relating to his crucifixion there, that Jesus made the statement to him, you would have no power against me were it not given to you from above. Do you remember that he said, don't you know that I could presently call down more than 12 legions of angels and you wouldn't have any power to stop me? Don't you know that? Don't you remember what Jesus did on the night before His crucifixion, though? As He went out into that garden, and He began to pray. And He prayed, and He prayed, and He prayed so hard that He began to sweat. And He continued to pray, and sweating, and He was in such a strain that the very capillaries within His body began to burst. I've never prayed that hard. 
And the blood began to come through the pores of his skin and drip down onto the ground mixed with his sweat. Jesus was dreading that next day. Jesus was dreading being nailed with those huge nails into his arms and into his feet. Jesus even prayed this prayer. Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And not many days before, Peter had been saying, Lord, this is not going to happen. Lord, you can't allow this to happen. Jesus had the power to stop it. He had to deny himself and take up his cross just like we do. Jesus was being tempted by Satan again through Peter. Jesus didn't want to have to die. Folks, if my Lord, if he himself had this had to battle a daily battle to keep from sinning, I'm no better than he is. I'm no better than my Savior. And so when I think that I don't feel like I can be forgiven because I still want to sin, all I need to do is remember my Savior. He battled the, the battle as well, and He overcame. And you know what? We can overcome too. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, at verse 13, Paul wrote and said, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted above your ability. But with the temptation, He'll also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We may have to say, get behind me, Satan. Get out of my way. We may have to say to friends, we may have to say to situations, we may have to say to places that you're going to have to get behind me so that I can continue to go forward and not regress into the sin. But just because I have a temptation doesn't mean that I cannot be forgiven by God. Jesus fought the battle on a daily basis. But then number four, as we think about why sometimes people have guilt that they simply cannot get rid of, maybe it's because they feel God hasn't forgiven them because someone else hasn't forgiven them. You know, that happens a lot of times, doesn't it? God forgives us, but there are other people who want to hold on to it. They want to keep bringing it up. They want to keep it ever before us so that that we can be punished by it. All of us, I think, this morning remember the story of the prodigal son. The one question that I want to ask you about that story this morning is simply this. Did the elder brother ever go in the house? Do what? Did the elder brother ever go in the house? You remember in Luke chapter 15, verses 25 through 32, after the son came home, the father welcomed him home, that they had the celebration. The, father, the, young, the older brother, rather, had been out, into the, out working, and when he comes home, this celebration is going on. And we remember the conversation between the elder brother and the father who goes out to try to get him to come in. He can't even call his, his brother his brother. He says, this your son. You know, look at what all he has done. Did the elder brother ever go in the house? I don't know if he did. God didn't see fit. It's never recorded that he did. It doesn't say that the father ever convinced him to forgive his brother. But there's one thing I know for sure. 
The elder son may not have forgiven his brother, but the father did. The father in the story is representative of our God. And that's the bigger point, isn't it? There may be people in our world who will not forgive us. And if that is the case, then the problem is not with you, it's with them. We do remember what Jesus told His disciples, don't we, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. In the prayer that He was teaching them to pray, He said, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. If we don't forgive, God's not going to forgive us. But that didn't affect the one that had already asked for forgiveness. That didn't affect the one that we're holding the grudge against. We have to be willing to forgive. And so, just because someone else hasn't forgiven us, perhaps even say that they won't forgive us, doesn't mean that we can't have forgiveness. When we think about that, we need to remember Colossians chapter 3 at verse number 13. The Bible says, "...bearing with one another, if one has a complaint against another..." Forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. We work on forgiving others ourselves. That's what God wants us to do. That's what God requires of us. But if someone fails to forgive me of something that I've done, that doesn't mean I can't have forgiveness from God. Doesn't mean we shouldn't ask. Doesn't mean we shouldn't live in such a way that we, we, we ask for the forgiveness from them. But if they still refuse, the problem is with them and not with us. And so we can't hold on to the guilt if someone refuses to forgive us. But then number five, maybe I feel like God loves others, but not me. Do you remember we earlier read where Paul referred to himself as the foremost sinner? 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. I am the foremost of whom I am, if you're reading from the King James Version, of whom I am the chief, the chiefest of sinners. Paul, that's the way Paul thought of himself in all of the things that he had done. But I can't help remembering what he wrote in the book of Galatians. Chapter number 2 at verse number 20. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live by faith, or the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Now watch the last part of this. Who loved the world? No. Who loved my brethren, the Jewish people? No. Who loved the foremost of sinners? Me. Some may feel God loves others, but not me. Paul said by inspiration, God loved him. Who loved me, and watch the last part of that verse, gave himself for me. You've heard me say this before, but I heard it from Brother Wendell Winkler a number of years ago. Brother Winkler said that 
as he read that verse, the thought that came to his mind was that if he had been the only sinner to ever live, God still loved him and would have given his son for him. And that's true of every single one of us. Paul does us a favor by not saying he loved the world. Jesus said that in John chapter 3, verse 16, did he not? But Paul made it more personal. And so if we have doubt in our heart that God can love us, we need to remember that very thing. God loved me and gave himself for me. Luke read for us Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 11. Very applicable here. The Bible says, but God shows His what? Love. God shows His love for us that while we were still sinners. What kind of sinners? Every single kind you can imagine. Do you remember we started our lesson by talking about Romans chapter 1? And the heinous sins that were committed by the Gentile Christians... And that the Jews were counted among them. They didn't deserve God's forgiveness, but He's extending it anyway. Even while they were still sinners, even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9 says, Since therefore we've now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were Enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. And then watch verse number 11. The wording is interesting. More than that. That's how verse 11 begins. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through Him, uh, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We rejoice. That word rejoice is used 36 times in the New Testament. 33 of those times, you won't ever guess what that word, how that word rejoice is translated unless you look it up. 33 of those 36 times, the word is translated by either the word boast, boasts, or boasting. What is the point? What is it that Paul is telling us here? Paul says that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Because of His death, we can be reconciled to God. When we're reconciled to God, we, we can continue to have salvation in Him. And folks, I can boast in that. I, I can boast in that. What does the word boast mean? Not, not necessarily like we sometimes think about it, but to undertake a complimentary testimony to is the definition of the word. I can tell everybody about what Christ did for me while I was a sinner. Because of what Jesus has done for our sinners due to His love, due to the love of God, we can in a good way boast, brag, glory, rejoice in the forgiveness by and the reconciliation to God. And so as I think about it then, 
Maybe I feel like God loves others, but not me, folks. The love of God extends to every single one of us. As we close our lesson this morning, I want us to understand that God allowed us to feel guilt and meant for that to be a temporary pain to turn us in the right direction. Guilt is not always bad. It, it's used in order to get us back in, in the right relationship with God. But the key word is temporary pain. It's not meant to be a permanent fixture in our life. When it becomes a permanent fixture, it becomes a crushing weight which causes daily anxiety and daily worry. And when it becomes that, that crushing weight, it can warp a person so that life itself cannot be enjoyed. When it's that permanent fixture in our life, it can cause a person to become his own or her own worst enemy and defeat oneself in the depths of despair. And it doesn't have to. If you're being crushed today by the weight of guilt, if you haven't already done so, get your life right with God. That's step number one. But if you've done that, I pray that you'll consider the lessons that we have talked about, the observations that we've made today, and that they will help you to overcome that guilt in your life. Why do I feel so guilty? There are a number of reasons, but they're all answered by God in His Word. Maybe you're here today and there's something amiss in your life that you need to correct. You can have the forgiveness of God. Maybe you're here today and, and you've never obeyed the Gospel. You need to come to the Lord. Whatever your need may be, if we can assist you in any way, why don't you come down right now as together we stand.